Welcome to episode 215 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by uh, our guest for the interview, Nick Schmidl, staff writer for The New Yorker, uh, and for the news roundup uh, by Jennifer Quinn-Barabinoff, who's chair of the firm's class action practice, by Jamil Jaffer, who is the founder of the National Security Institute, by Megan Reese, who's a senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute. And of course, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, I'm doing this remotely, so apologies if the quality is not quite as good as usual, which isn't all that good anyway. Um, so why don't we just jump right in. Uh, Jamil, domain fronting, we barely knew what it was before it started to go away. Uh, what is it and why should we be happy it's going away? Well, so uh, domain fronting is a is a quirk, at least as as Google describes it, in the way that both Amazon and Google allow access to its servers. Essentially, um, when a individual communicates or a organization communicates with Google servers, uh, in the TLS uh, header uh, encrypted is the is is potentially a different destination than the IP address itself. And so, uh, Google and Amazon servers, at least until this feature was disabled. Um, allowed you to go to their servers and then go from there to another server and and sort of hide where your ultimate destination was uh, because the ultimate destination was in the TLS encrypted header. Um, and so what they've done now is as part of their overall effort to, uh, to upgrade their systems and the like, uh, they've sort of gotten rid of what they didn't see as a feature but as a bug. Of course, uh, a lot of uh, privacy advocates um, and access groups saw it as a feature, not a bug. Um, and uh, and are and are very unhappy to have lost it. Uh, at the same time, yeah, cyber they're, criminals. They're, they're, their idea that it's a f- the, their idea that it's a feature is basically that uh, this allowed people in countries where they weren't supposed to be using uh, secure communications. Uh, uh, this allowed them to evade those restrictions by pretending to go to a, a site like Google or uh, Amazon that. Uh, no one, no government was likely to want to block, uh, and the government couldn't tell whether uh, it was really a Google request or it was um, going to be a domain-fronted request to go out to Telegram or to uh, uh, Signal or some other encrypted system. Exactly right, exactly right. So it's used by all, all manner of activists and, and democracy rights folks and human rights activists. At the same time, it's also utilized uh, by cyber criminals um, and potentially nation-state actors to hide their own covert infrastructure uh, that they use to extract revenue um, and and other things out of uh, out of people who don't want to who don't who don't want to be hacked. Uh, and so uh, it's been a problem on that side. So you know what helps uh, the activists also helps the criminals. Um, and it, suffice to say that Google and Amazon have now taken action to get rid of this. Um, and so people are up in arms uh, on both sides. I'm sure, criminals are up in arms. They're not. They're just not. They're complaining to the press. About it, um, and so a lot of unhappiness all around, um, except for the big companies who say, "Look, you know, we don't want our infrastructure being utilized by uh, by bad actors." And there are plenty of other ways to get to this goal. Um, this is not one of them, uh, but it does empower the Russian censors and the Chinese censors for sure. And, but also all of the uh, enterprise uh, uh, CISOs who want to know where their stuff is going, so that they can spot exfiltration to. Uh, 
improper domains. Uh, so uh, my guess is that's the more common use of this, notwithstanding all the press coverage of the human rights activists. Uh, so probably not a bad uh, development all in all, even though our betters are telling us we should be uh, sorry to see it go. Okay. Um, so the Supreme Court has taken a case that is actually going to turn out to be pretty important to uh, uh, high-tech companies because they are often on the receiving end of these uh, uh, big privacy class, class actions that uh, result in damages of about 20 cents per person. Uh, and uh, um, in at least the Ninth Circuit, they've been settled with... Uh, See prey awards uh, that go to, huh, well, those privacy groups that were just complaining about uh, uh, domain fronting. Uh, and uh, uh, now there seems to be a Supreme Court challenge to that practice. Uh, Jennifer, um, what exactly uh, is the Supreme Court going to be looking at? Right. So uh, this takes a little bit of background explaining. So just be patient with me for a minute, because I think that the end of the story, just to preview, is that, that we may end up in a place that leaves everybody unhappy. Uh, so, it, you know, you hear about the Supreme Court taking on these uh, really what some people would criticize as, as sort of settlements that provide a vehicle for nothing but attorney's fees, but it's just not that simple. So Cypre is a concept uh, from trust uh, trust law, and what it means uh, is that it means as near Actually, as... Actually, can I, can I stop you one... Can I just stop you right there? Um, a, for, for young lawyers listening to this, uh, do not be intimidated by Jennifer's pronunciation of Cypre. The proper pronunciation is Cypre, notwithstanding however many judges get it wrong. It's law French. There are there there is no long Y in French. All right, go ahead, Cypre. All right. Well, in any event, um, so Cypre. Uh, so it means as near as possible. And the point uh, of it, its its origins is that in a trust law where uh, you couldn't accomplish the designated purpose of the trust because it had either become unlawful or impossible or impractical. Uh, you, the court would fashion uh, a new application of the trust property that would try to accomplish as closely as possible the original intent of the trust. Um, and so very often money would go to a, a charitable purpose, okay? And uh, Cypre, that way it comes up in class settlements is most often where there is leftover settlement money that has not been claimed by class members and there needs to be something done with that leftover money in order to close out the settlement, it will, the settlement agreements will often provide some sort of payment to some kind of nonprofit agreed to by the parties. Um, it, it also can apply in situations, which is what Stuart highlighted here, where the court determines that individual payments are impractical or wasteful because basically the costs of administering uh, individual payments exceed the values of those payments. Um, now, Cypre uh, payments have become uh, kind of more prevalent in the aftermath of the Class Action Fairness Act. CAFA creates disincentives for coupon settlements because the attorney's fees for the plaintiffs will be based only on the coupons that are redeemed, okay? And since the redemption rate of these coupon settlements was historically very low, the plaintiff's bar was not happy with the kinds of returns that those kind of settlements would generate at post-CAFA. Cypre payments don't 
present the same problem. They get paid off the total amount of money paid to tra- uh, charity. And these pedal- uh, Cypress settlements have been criticized because there are all sorts of anecdotes about the charities involved and their connections to either the plaintiffs or the defense lawyers, either people's alma maters or charity run by people's brothers and sisters or their wives. And so there's been a lot of questions. Plus, plus, you know, I I have to say, you know, uh, the alleged privacy violations of uh, my rights go to fund groups that I fundamentally disagree with. Well, right, but the but the point I think we'll get to is that in a lot of circumstances, these you know it, we all sometimes would like closure, right? And and if the where this is headed, which is what it seems like, is that it's going to make it difficult to reach closure. It's not necessarily a good thing. So Cypress settlements have been on a shaky footing since at least 2013, where uh, the Supreme Court denied uh, cert in a case brought against Facebook again, for alleged uh, privacy violations. And the chief justice, in a separate opinion uh, denying cert, which is pretty unusual, said that he had there were fundamental concerns about these Cypress uh, payments, including when, if ever, such relief, relief should be considered and how to assess its fairness as a general matter. So these so questions he's, have he's been out there. He's basically, in 2013, he sends... The signal. It sends up the bat signal saying, uh, this is a cert worthy uh, issue. Bring it back and I'll get four votes to take this case, to take a case. Right. And so the case that they have picked raises the issue in its purest form. Okay. So the cases captioned that they've now agreed to hear is called Frank versus Gauss. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Stuart. Maybe you can correct me. <laughs> um, but this is a case against Google. It's a case just like the kind you've described where, um, so there's a, it envisions a $6.4 million payment to charity, a $2.1 million payment to lawyers. The justification for the Cypre payment is that if you, uh, looked at it on an individualized basis, each class member would get four cents. And, um, the case was brought by Ted Frank, who is, uh, the head of the Competitive Enterprise Institute's, uh, Center for Class Action Fairness, who has become a bit of a gadfly on these, uh, class action settlement issues. Um, so, so again, this is a case that the Supreme Court has decided to hear. It is a pure Cypre settlement case. Uh, based on what's been out there from the court, Justice Roberts' statement, it doesn't seem like they're hearing it to say good things. Um, so there are really two options. Either they can uh, invalidate these kind of payments or they can establish standards for when they are appropriate. And And all I will say about this is, you know, the plaintiff's bar will not be happy uh, about – uh, limitations on these kinds of settlements if it, it under uh, impacts their bottom line in terms of their fees. The nonprofits will be unhappy with uh, limitations if they, uh, you know, eliminate what the privacy community, uh, you know, the NGO privacy community perceives as a deterrent effect of these settlements. And there will oh, be plus a payoff, <laughs> right? Well, right. Plus the donations, which of course are always nice and welcome. Um, but you know, there are times where companies are going to want to try to resolve these things. And so, if you can't have a Cypress settlement, uh, or if it's really difficult, like it is now with coupon settlements, how are we going to resolve these things? Are you going to try them? 
I mean, you can. All right. Well, so, <laughs> so <laughs> but it, it will be expensive. It's going to be a hard issue, you think? Yeah, and and uh, in the end, no one may be happy. Well, okay, that that's the, that's the nature of litigation. Okay, I I want to talk about something we don't often talk about. We usually talk about uh, computer uh, security issues, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I cannot help uh, taking a close look at this. Uh, uh, the concept of biohacking and the fallout uh, from biohacking. Uh, um, uh, uh, Megan, uh, uh, biohacking was in the news in a bad way in the last week. It was. It was. And this is one of the crazier stories I've ever heard. And this is in the current day and age. So that's saying something. So so what Stuart's referring to is this, the what I'd now call the tragic story of Aaron Trawick, who famously, infamously made news in Austin last year when he and someone else injected themselves with a herpes strain in order to combat AIDS. That's that's how the stories went down. So basically, they went on stage. They used this made-up injection, injected themselves. People walked away saying, wow, that was quite different. And what they did was they called it a form of biohacking, which is this innovative, break everything and try to recreate things new in a better way movement that's going on from Silicon Valley um what, uh, all the way out here. And unfortunately, Trawick was found uh, deceased in a sensory deprivation flotation tank in D.C. last week. And so far, the news reports aren't saying how he died. It wasn't suspicious, but it's it's just this whole big mess of different things and strains coming out that are basically showing that biohacking is here. It's a movement where people want to break things and try try again, but there there's some pretty suspicious stuff going on behind the scenes. So it, it does seem to me it's the same spirit that we've seen in computer hacking for oh, the definitely. last 30 years. Let's let's just give this a try, see what happens. Uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, uh, and a couple of them, uh, you know, a few a few machines fall over, no harm. We'll just reboot them. Uh, but of course, um, Treywick didn't didn't reboot so well. Yeah, and there's there's this whole mo- oh gosh, there's this whole this whole part of this which is people have decided over the last few decades that when it comes to human experimentation, we need to have a lot of thought behind the ethics of of the things we decide to do. Um, this was a big movement in the early 2000s when it, when we uh, were talking about cloning and stem cell research because the idea that you could impact human life is is fundamental to, to human existence. And maybe we shouldn't be altering certain parts of our DNA or impl- imp- um, implanting eyes in the back of our heads, the sort of things that biohackers sometimes talk about. And to have this movement go forward without the necessary ethical discussions behind it, I, I just don't think that 25-year-old biohackers in Silicon Valley should be really dictating the future of humanity. 
Yeah, the the problem is not so much uh, if 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 somebody Trelec what wants to take these risks with himself, mm-hmm. you might say, well, okay, fine, let it, let him do it. It, it may be dumb, but it's uh, his life. Exactly. Uh, um, the real risk here is that biohacking is going to produce infectious agents that uh, uh, could uh, uh, hurt us all. And it's and preying that's on just as likely. It's also preying on people who have legitimate problems and diseases and giving them hope without having the necessary scientific backing behind a possible solution. Of course, you need to do trials and all of this stuff when you're developing new medications and treatments and the stuff that biohacking wants to address. But if you're having someone who seems like a savior come to you and say, I have a potential solution, even though no one's ever tested it and it hasn't gone through real trials, um, you're, you're going to be kind of putting people who are most vulnerable in tricky situations and trying to convince them to do to do things that probably are really terrible for them. So one of the stories that we didn't cover last week uh, was an announcement by a whole bunch of European agencies, plus the United States, that they had uh, taken down ISIS propaganda uh, uh, all across the board, it had a a really remarkably successive, successful takedown of a bunch of ISIS content distribution uh, systems. Uh, I, I didn't cover it just because we didn't have much time, uh, uh, but it turns out that uh, uh, the takedown might only have lasted a, a few days uh, and uh, uh, that ISIS is back and broadcasting as happy as ever. Um, Jamil, did you uh, uh, follow that story? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, this is uh, an interesting operation uh, conducted by Europol uh, in a coordinated effort with the United States um, and and uh, and uh, authorities in seven other countries uh, to take down Amak, which is uh, ISIS's propaganda arm. It's their media content development uh, platform um, and distribution platform, and so. Uh, they took this coordinated action in a variety of places, uh, some through, mostly through law enforcement action to take down these servers, uh, that were hosting these websites, uh, and to go to the providers and, and get them to remove them. Um, and they did, and uh, down the site went. But as you say, Stuart, um, about six days later, uh, the site was back up and running, apparently at least in part hosted by a server in Phoenix, Arizona, which I'm sure is, uh, is of no excitement to the FBI and, and, uh, and other folks who were concerned about the, uh, the use of the internet. Uh, for propaganda purposes. And in fact, uh, the day, the day they came back online, uh, they used their new platform to highlight an attack, um, in the Libyan capital. So, um, you know, obviously, as, as we know, these, uh, taking out jihadist websites, uh, can be a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, this has been a problem for the government for a long time, ever since, uh, the government began, uh, trying to determine whether it should take cyber actions, uh, either in cyberspace itself or through law enforcement tools against uh, uh, terrorist groups and, uh, and, and what you do about the game of whack-a-mole with they're just popping back up in different places. And so, and this remains an ongoing debate, by the way, between the intelligence community, uh, the military, uh, and law enforcement authorities, uh, many of whom, uh, some of whom want to continue to collect intelligence on, on some of these sources, at least the, the more uh, covert fora, um, and those that want to, uh, that want to take them down because they're creating, uh, jihadist propaganda, potentially bomb-making instructions, and service coordination cells for, um, that's an ongoing debate, and I think one that will continue uh, going forward. Yeah, Cyber Command is, you know, takes uh, uh, ISIS sites down, uh, maybe a little more directly than uh, uh, other uh, 
Um, it, uh, law enforcement authorities are, are used to, to take down uh, uh, ISIS sites. Uh, but I do think that there ought to be some real consideration given to uh, uh, whether we're going to create a new cyber command, an independent cyber command. If, if this is all they're going to do, it isn't worth it to create a separate command, especially one that could say, we don't care about your intelligence priorities. We just want to take it down for six days. Well, right. So, you know, it's, it's Cyber Command is there now. It's now, a, a, you know, it's a unified command. Um, and the only question, as you point out, is do you separate it from NSA? And, and the, you know, the big debate, as you as you just said, is has been this debate about do you want that intelligence gain-loss equity? Do you want that decided by one person who's got both control over Cyber Command and over NSA and making that judgment about whether the whether the offensive action is worth the intelligence loss? In a lot of ways, you know, this is – it's not unique to uh, cyberspace activities, but it is different than most activities because you're not typically blowing your intelligence collection methodology uh, when you take offensive action. Uh, the rare circumstance in which that happens in other places is, say, you use a, a human asset to conduct an operation that was inside of a, uh, an organization. Then you're going to blow that asset uh, to potentially lose their life. Um, and it's, so it's similar in that sense. It's not an unheard of challenge, but it is one that is very prominent in cyberspace. And I think this is this has animated, you're exactly right, to animate this debate over uh, what Cyber Command's role is, what they're going to be doing, and is there really any benefit to this sort of game of whack-a-mole? Uh, one thing I will say uh, that uh, that I think we've seen over time is that um, taking down these sites can chase uh, the enemy into eight places where it's easier to collect on them uh, and, and to use uh, forms of communication that are less, uh, that are more accessible to the U.S. government. So at times, creating a little bit of chaos in the organization uh, does create create a dissonance that, that the government can take advantage of. So there's that upside too at times. Yeah, Phoenix, Arizona might be a good place to uh, to watch ISIS uh, put its uh, uh, stuff online. Uh, um, and so maybe that was all the plan. Uh, um, so we ought to talk uh, briefly about more bad news for Chinese phone manufacturers. Uh, U.S. military sales, the PXs, have now banned ZTE and uh, other Chinese mobile infrastructure uh, uh, phones, Huawei. Uh, um, and there's some talk that there might be even more pain planned as part of the intellectual property 301 retaliation uh, that might uh, flag uh, infrastructure providers from China for uh, actual outright bans of sales to third parties. Uh, so um, I guess that's not a surprise anymore that uh, uh, these companies are top of the list for retaliation, but uh, it's certainly uh, uh, going on as we uh, uh, as we have expected. Uh, uh, one other topic, because I know we're running low on time. Uh, uh, Dutch Ruppersberger is the um, uh, Ranking member of the Appropriations Committee that oversees DHS, uh, he was also uh, the um, uh, ranking member of the intelligence community back in the uh, day when there was an actual uh, uh, when when the uh, uh, sorry. Um, uh, Ruppersberger was the uh, head of, was the ranking member of the intelligence, uh, House Intelligence Committee back in the day when he and Mike Rogers actually ran a very bipartisan uh, intelligence committee. Uh, and he's written a report on DHS and information sharing and cybersecurity that uh, uh, is 
both thoughtful and pretty nonpartisan. Megan, uh, anything uh, uh, particularly noteworthy in his uh, report on DHS cybersecurity? Yeah, and you might disagree and want to highlight a couple different things, but there there were three points in particular that I thought were noteworthy, um, one of which is he basically re- recommended reviewing or making sure that the vulnerabilities equities process is still on track. There was this process is the review process that they go through that folks go through when you see a vulnerability in, in say software or something like that. And the government needs to decide whether or not it exploits that vulnerability or if it tells the company um, that distributes the software to fix the software. And of course, this has turned out to be a problem when it, when it comes to some of these big hacks that have led to nation state actors going and using the vulnerabilities and then creating malware that ends up affecting a whole lot of people and causing a whole lot of harm. And in some cases, the government had decided already to inform, say, Microsoft to to fix the vulnerability. But basically, uh, Ruppersberger is saying, let's make sure that the this balance that we've struck between exploiting versus telling uh, folks to fix problems is the right balance. Um, there's another point which I so thought was... Let me, let, oh, me stop yeah. on, let me stop on that because I, I, considering that he was on the intelligence committee, I thought there was one thing he left out. Uh, I thought it was pretty clear from the uh, the Microsoft Eternal Blue uh, issue that uh, um, the release of the um, exploit into the wild happened after... NSA had notified Microsoft and after Microsoft had come up with a patch and at which point the Russians had their own vulnerabilities equity process in which they said, well, this uh, attack is no longer really valuable to us against high priority targets. So why don't we release it in the way that will maximize the damage to NSA? And so uh, some of what's going on here is a Russian um, uh, operation designed to harm its principal intelligence competitor. And, uh, you know, that, that's not the only uh, thing we should be taking into account as we design our uh, vulnerability equity process, but we ought to bear it in mind and, and uh, not just assume this is the evils of NSA. This is a lot more complicated than that. Yes, and I think they really struck a balanced tone talking about it in the report. They didn't say that the process is broken. They said, you know, stuff has happened in the past year that maybe we need to just give this a second look and make sure that we have struck the right balance. Um, the a couple other things that were kind of interesting. He noted something that I hadn't heard about, which is that the um, that they're transitioning funding for cyber R&D from the Science and Technology Directorate to the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which in within DHS. And that's really kind of interesting. They're moving R&D um, to operations and 
he's just saying, you know, maybe there should be a bigger review process and we should know why this is happening and make sure because of the importance of cyber R&D that we have this in the right place. A lot of this report in general is making sh- it's less critical. It's more making sure that we are doing things to the best of our ability to get uh, cybersecurity in the best shape it can be within DHS. And then so I know they, something about that uh, I, uh, because uh, there's been a lot. There's always a tension between S and T, which wants to fund um, uh, cutting edge research, and the components that want something that will help them in the next uh, twelve months. Yes, uh, right. and uh, uh, it's it. It looks as though NPPD, as a component, has gotten more authority to direct this research. Um, because they think they can do a better job of finding things that are going to be directly relevant to them. Uh, my one concern here is, and I just don't know what happened here, um, Doug Mon, who ran the cybersecurity R&D uh, section for um, uh, DHS, uh, um, was for years the only credible part of DHS on cybersecurity, and his research uh, uh, grants were the only things that uh, uh, people who cared a lot about cybersecurity uh, truly respected. I would hate to see him lose out in some bureaucratic turf fight, uh, um, but I don't know whether that's the, the outcome here. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to highlight, it, it's probably not a surprise because this is something that folks outside and inside still complain about, which is uh, Ruppersburg wanted to say we need to have better information sharing with the private sector. The private sector is where 80 percent of things are happening. And if we're if we don't have good processes in place to make sure that the private sector knows what it needs to fix, what the risks are, we're all going to be in a worse position. Uh, this is not novel. This is not something he came up with. But having it reiterated over and over in a lot of different locations in government, hopefully is forcing people to pay attention. Yeah, it was a very discouraging report in that regard, uh, that there is still so little interest in, in, in sharing information and getting information from DHS because of a concern that the, uh, um, the product is not uniform enough and not, uh, uh, focused enough, uh, for, uh, people to, uh, to take action on. Uh, I don't know how that's going to play out because in, in some respects, DHS is competing now with a bunch of information sharing private sector entities, which are almost always going to be uh, more pleasing to customers because that's that's how they make their money. Uh, I, but uh, it was a, a very discouraging report, and, and it is something that needs to be looked at pretty closely. Okay, uh, we're out of time for our news roundup, uh, and I want to turn to Nicholas Schmidl. Nick, do, did I pronounce your name right? That is correct, yeah. Okay. Nick is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's the author of uh, To Live or to Perish Forever, Two Tumultuous Years in Pakistan, which I can recommend to you if you uh, care at all about Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's a uh, uh, entertaining, uh, kind of picaresque uh, uh, tour of Pakistan as he uh, hooks up with a remarkable variety of uh, um, uh, very dangerous people who seem to think that it's kind of amusing to have a six-foot 
blonde guy uh, uh, who speaks Urdu in their uh, uh, in their entourage. Uh, uh, although I gather there are times when maybe uh, being six foot cute blonde guy might be a real disadvantage in uh, in Pakistan. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I think one of the stories you told was the uh, about uh, the. Um, uh, engagement with young boys by, uh, the older men of the, uh, uh, of Pakistan in a particular village. And, uh, one of the, uh, people who's traveling with you says, uh, yeah, when pigeons fly over this village, they do it with one wing because they have to keep the other wing over their bottom. I, <laughs> I, so, uh, congratulations on surviving that, however you did and whatever you had to do to survive. Uh, uh that's not what we're calling, uh, calling you to talk about. Uh, I wanted to talk about your article um, in the New Yorker called Digital Vigilantes Who Hack Back. And you start out that story, which is, I, I have to say, some great reporting. Uh, you got people to talk who had never talked uh, to a reporter before. Um, and you start the story, really you build the story around a guy named Sean Carpenter. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who he is and why he's so relevant to your story? Sure. Um, yeah, and th- thanks for having me on. This is a, I'm, I'm a big fan of the podcast and, and I'm delighted to be on this afternoon. So, uh, yeah, so, so Sean Carpenter, uh, is a, was a, was a security analyst at Sandia National Labs, uh, in 2003 when, uh, Sandia, which was at the time managed by Lockheed Martin, uh, suffered some, uh, network problems. And Sean and his team, uh, showed up at the scene and did some, analysis of the network and determined that uh, the Lockheed system had most likely been hacked and that they felt like there were some investigative threads that they could um, uh, that they could pursue but uh, according to, to, to Sean the, the, his the, the folks at Lockheed and at Sandia just simply kind of wanted to pass the problem make it go away didn't want to either go about uh, spending time and resources to do the forensics to figure out exactly where this came from and or sort of, you know, as, as I think many companies uh, may be concerned about, also didn't want to run the risk of, of dragging uh, the story out any longer than possible and thus running the risk of, of kind of exposure. So, uh, so Sean uh, is, is a, uh, a, a brilliant guy with a sort of insatiable uh, mind and he went home and began doing this uh fairly sophisticated running this fairly sophisticated attribution operation out of his uh out of his home office uh, uh in Albuquerque in the evenings uh after work would come home and was logging on and 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 assembled a uh collection of honeypots um stocked these honeypots with with uh, uh recently or, or declassified um uh materials that he hoped sort of at first glance uh the hackers who had come for the Lockheed uh, network would 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 sort of uh, would would be uh, tempted by, and they in fact did. And he began uh, following them back to a, a series of hot points that ultimately uh, culminated at the, the the gateway to a network uh, in Guangdong, China. All right. So he and to to put a finer point on that. Uh, uh, first they broke into his honeypot, no problem there, but then he followed them out to a variety of intermediate points and logged onto those sites uh, and then also uh, discovered people logging onto those intermediate sites who were from Guangdong. Uh, um, and at some point in that process, uh, 
uh, he was uh, way past uh, the uh, the line that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act draws. Absolutely. So that's yeah. So he, um, you know, as as uh, as he told me, he was he was aware that uh, he was certainly beyond uh, his network, Lockheed's network, Cindy's network, any network that he had uh, the the authorization, the authority to uh to be conducting do to do be doing anything inside of. And so and this was this is sort of my my way into the story I thought, which was exploring the bigger issue of the kind of um, um, ethical, normative, legal, operational considerations um, uh, surrounding this 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 hackback debate. And you know, so Sean Carpenter was was certainly doing he was doing this sort of in some ways sort of in uh corporate self defense for an entity that had not necessarily assigned him to do that, but really doing it as much out of uh out of out of uh frustration um as as many corporate CEOs CEOs are feeling and the fact that they are being hacked and, and, and don't uh have the Tools with the legal authorities to be able to um, strike back against the hackers, and he was also doing it, I think, out of a sense of, of of kind of what was you know what was what was right, and and so as he said, uh, you know, it wasn't he knew that he did not have criminal intent, um, and that is all you know. It kind of felt like he could potentially defend that uh, if need be down the road, and um, so he well, he, he also he, tried to protect himself by going to the FBI and saying, look, uh, this is what I'm finding. Uh, um, by the way, uh, you don't mind that I'm doing this, do you? Right, exactly. And and they not only said uh, that they did not mind, but that they they soon enlisted his help. Um, and uh, as as it later came out in in um, uh, in, in legal filings, uh, the FBI got a letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Mexico saying that they would not um, charge Sean Carpenter with any sort of CFAA violations uh, for his work, which he was now sort of doing in concert with the FBI, um, as well as with uh, Army, um, uh, as well as with Army intelligence. And uh, as they told him that his Leads were uh, feeding three ongoing criminal investigations and and, and several uh, military operations. Um, specifics of of either of those uh, I don't know, uh, and I'm not sure that Sean knows either. But uh, so he had. But the, so, is the letter is the letter actually in the public uh, record? Uh, that I've never heard of a letter. Um, you know, it's something that 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 would be valuable to a lot of people, but a letter from prosecutors saying, "Yeah, we know that you're in violation of the CFAA, but it's so valuable that we would not prosecute you for it." Yeah, there is uh, th- there is certainly a letter that was produced um, uh, during discovery uh, in a subsequent uh, in a subsequent legal case, and uh, the wording of it is uh, a little bit mushier than what you uh, just just sort of outlined, but but not not by much. It certainly uh, it certainly is 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 uh, you know we have no intent of of uh, pressing charges against Mr. Carpenter for his activities that he's doing in coordination with the FBI. So I, I, I don't want to uh, leave people in suspense about the nature of the uh, legal proceeding, but I will ask you, if you get a chance and if you've got access to that letter, send it to us and we'll post it. Uh, sure, uh, sure, sure, sure. But uh, the uh, uh, the reason there were legal proceedings, the reason we know about this story is that it didn't actually end well for, uh, for Sean Carpenter. Uh, uh, he got canned, right? 
That's right. So, so at, at one point, the bureau went to his employers, to, to Sean Carpenter's employers at Sandia, and uh, informed them that Carpenter was in fact working with the bureau on several cases. And uh, Sean's superiors at Sandia did not take that well uh, and threatened to uh, threatened to to uh, terminate his employment unless he stopped and unless he stopped using. You know, essentially they 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 accused him of being insubordinate. They accused him of breaking the law. Uh, it was all, they didn't have much choice. And, and again, he was sort of what he, he was convinced that he was, what he was doing, uh, with, with the Bureau was, uh, for national security, for the interest of national security and, and doing the right thing. And so he was, uh, uh, ultimately fired. And so he turned around and sued Sandia for, a wrongful termination on account of public policy, um, and essentially claiming that that what again what he was doing was in the national security, uh, and um, uh, and was sort of with the full knowledge and and assistance of federal authorities, and he won the case and won a four point seven I think million dollar settlement in the end. Okay, so uh, you know I'm, I'm sure. Uh, that that's nice, but that he could have done a startup uh, and made more uh, with the time that he spent uh, in litigation. Uh, uh, but uh, maybe the publicity will help him do a startup now. Um, so I one thing. So that was not a uh, that did not get to trial, although it uh, must have come pretty close. Uh, no, um, no, it did. It it, it went it oh, went okay. to trial. Uh, yeah, there was oh, okay. there was a one week trial in two thousand and seven. So I believe jury gave, the jury gave him that money. The, the jury sided with him, and then the, the yeah, the exactly the jury sided with him, and then it, uh, whether the judge or whether the jury ultimately settled on four point seven. Um, I'd have to go back and check my notes, but yeah, the the the, the jury sided with him ultimately. So. He, you know, and so for me, in many ways, Sean's story was kind of emblematic. It, it just it captured a lot of different threads uh, in this in this hackback debate. It 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 sort of put you, uh, perched you on the shoulder of of an operator in the midst of of uh, um, you know an attribution operation, an overseas attribution operation against a state sponsored actor. It showed you, I thought, that um, actually this could be done. Uh, some of the some of the some of the the naysayers that say, you know, attribution is very hard, you know, it's really hard. You can't do it. You never know sort of whether you're, you know, you're going to, you're going to hack a hospital, you know, all the sort of worst case scenarios, it seemed to address those. And yet it also, in the end, kind of turned his life upside down. And as he later said to me, you know, it kind of, you know, it could have gone wrong a lot of different ways. And so I thought it was actually, it was both sort of a success story and a cautionary tale wrapped into one. So uh, uh, you called me about this story, and I, I should say yeah. uh, I'm, I'm quoted uh, uh, yeah. in the story. But uh, uh, the thing I remember is telling you that I was under the impression that there was a story around the Iran DDoS attacks on American banks uh, and that there actually had been a, a, a moment when uh, the banks, frustrated with the kind of um, uh, halting and ineffective response of the U.S. government to those attacks, um, uh, did some hacking back itself to basically cure the, the, the botnetted machines so that they couldn't be used to attack uh, uh, banks and that the response of the government was to investigate the banks for hacking back. Uh, and I said, I promised I would subscribe to The New Yorker if you got that story, and you did. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a great story. I, I, maybe you can tell in a little more detail what actually happened. 
Sure, sure. So, you know, and so look, I should say that that sort of investigative credit uh, to to where it's due. You know, there had actually been, um, I believe it was Bloomberg that reported uh, maybe back in 2014 that there was. That the bureau had shown an interest in J.P. Morgan Chase uh, as a result of some conversations that had been happening at the time um, involving the banks and involving uh, government officials as to what to do about this problem. So the problem stems from uh, late 2011 until early 2013, and a uh, a group of hackers that that has subsequently been indicted and 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 um, uh, are associated with the Iran's uh, uh, military with the with the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They began launching a series of DDoS attacks on on several uh, well dozens of U.S. financial institutions. And and I you know if I can say I, it, it looked to me at the time as though that those attacks were carefully calibrated to show a much greater capability than they were actually using. They were kind of a couple of hours during business hours in both the United States and Iran. Uh, they weren't all out attacks. They were kind of, uh, uh, look what we can do. It could get worse for you. Uh, and right. I always thought that they were a, a, a sort of um, foretelling of what the Iranian response would be if the talks over Iran nuclear capability broke down and the U.S. started looking for more kinetic options and they were demonstrating that the Iran had its own set of options. Uh, could be wrong, but that's what I, I thought they were doing. Certainly, and that, 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 that's no doubt the, uh, the, the environment in which um, this whole campaign was taking place. Uh, it was uh, not long after the revelation, public revelation um, of the Stuxnet worm, um, and it was at the time that the U.S. was involved in trying to negotiate uh, the nuclear deal, so there was there were there were a lot of sort of bigger geopolitical um, issues swirling about, and certainly my my read on it as well. Uh, my read on it as well is that it that it was that it was uh, a show of force as much as it was uh, a kind of a, a, a strike in and of itself. Um, the uh, but you know uh, the, the banks. It was a very this, this was this was this was a tough anecdote to try and run down because the amount of money and resources that these U.S. financial institutions have to defend themselves and to and, and for sort of cybersecurity writ large is is you know is is, is larger than the, the you know is five hundred six hundred million dollars I heard for for J.P. Morgan uh, just enormous amounts of money and so there you know J.P. Morgan it's Spokesperson uh, did not uh, walk back any elements of, of that that Bloomberg story, and and furthermore, um, uh, Carpenter, who at the time, uh, Sean Carpenter, who who uh, after after winning that suit, did invest in, in, in several cybersecurity startups, and then went on and worked as a, uh, um, a technical analyst at at Eyesight Partners, which is a, a, Lieber, a leading cyber intelligence firm. 
um, at wall, uh, you know, eyesight was doing some very innovative things at the time. Uh, and, and one of them, which was sort of, uh, one of them was that they were doing some malware analysis on behalf of, uh, some of the companies that were being targeted, uh, in this DDoS, um, campaign. And they, you know, in sort of typical malware analysis, they were explaining to these companies how they could both better protect themselves and also explaining that there were some bugs in the malware and that if they, um, uh, essentially, if they sent that malware back to its originator with said bugs in it, uh, that it would crash those systems. And, you know, Carpenter said, I have no idea what the companies did with that information, but that information was supplied to them. Uh, and so, so, so like, sh- sh- I should say that Sean Carpenter is now officially the zealot of the hackback community. He's everywhere, uh, at every important moment in the history of hacking back. There he is. But this time he's learned a lot. Uh, uh, which is uh, uh, whatever you do, it ought to be deniable, and he's denied it. Uh, I didn't. I didn't hack back. I just uh, pointed out that there were these problems with the, the malware that was being used to attack him. Um, and somebody, however, it looks like, d- did actually uh, um, uh, use those packets to to bring down some of the machines. Is that right? That seems to be. You know, I that 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 that's a that's a. a, a statement with the kind of confidence that I don't have necessarily because I don't have documents in front of me but but I think that it's uh I think that it certainly is reasonable to think that some of the information that the cyber intelligence firms were providing to these clients that felt like they were uh, up to that point powerless certainly may well have been acted upon. And the FBI really did do some investigating. The FBI did do some investigating. They did interview people. Or intimidating at, is another another uh, way of putting it. Having been embarrassed first by the attacks and then by the fact that somebody else uh, found a way to fix it, they decided. Well, you know, this is uh, this is I think embarrass them. <laughs> this is I think the 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 lead up to those attacks also is um uh, is I think a fascinating dynamic because here you have uh, the NSA was aware that. These attacks were coming, not not specific time, place, or targets, but they 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 could see that there were botnets um, forming, and they apparently um, there there were intercepts that were picked up picked up that were indicating that these were being coordinated uh, via the Iranian government. So so that's the sort. So so the NSA is aware of that. The NSA shares that information with the FBI, and the FBI shares that information with um, uh, some of the with with the with the banks. So so the, so from a bank's perspective, you know, you could see why it would be frustrating. It's okay. Well, the might of the U.S. government, uh, the the sort of the the, the signals and, and cyber intelligence arms of the U.S. government, and, and that architecture is able to know that something is coming. But can't actually don't have the doesn't have the authority, the standing authorities to be able to actually defend me from it. And so, uh, you know, it kind of gets back to the, the the bigger, broader intel question, which is, you know, for what use? And that that uh, um, series of events is is in, uh, one of the um, series of events that that I think has sort of precipitated the legislation that is now uh that is that has been uh proposed on Capitol Hill by 
Representative Tom Gray to Georgia that would allow some company that would that would lift some of the restrictions on uh, private sector entities doing some of these operations that are currently in violation of, of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So we've talked to the Representative Graves about that. Uh, he, you know, he's an ACDC fan, so of course he named his uh, his act the uh, well the ACDC Act. I've not, I can't remember what it, it uh, uh, is actually about about uh, what the actual title is. Uh, um, a, and uh, uh, as you say, it, it enables certain relatively limited exceptions to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act under government supervision. Uh, it's, it's drawn some fire. Uh, he seems to believe that he can get support from the administration. Uh, uh, and uh, I wondered whether you thought that was actually in the cards, or is he being unduly hopeful? Um, well, so I spoke to uh, Rob Joyce, who uh, is, was uh, up until very recently, maybe this week, is just about to transition back to NSA, but but had been uh, the cybersecurity coordinator um, for the first uh, year and a half of the Trump administration. So so effectively. Uh, President Trump's lead cybersecurity advisor. And so Joyce, um, Joyce spoke about the legislation and, uh, expressed, as he said, you know, had, had sort of grave reservations and concerns about it. And, which I think is an interesting perspective, right? So, so, so Joyce, echoing statements made by, uh, former, uh, NSA director, uh, Mike Rogers, I guess this was, I guess Rogers' statements were made in his capacity as, as, uh, Cyber Command, um, uh, head of Cyber Command, but both of them expressed concerns that, uh, if you authorize these kinds of activities, it is going to make the NSA's job and even the FBI's job probably to some extent more difficult because you're going to have all of these, these, these sort of the vigilante actors out in cyberspace sort of mucking up the space and potentially inadvertently disrupting ongoing operations or, or investigations. So, so Joyce, uh, did not seem nearly as bullish on the legislation as, uh, Graves had led me to believe that the White House was feeling. By the same token, um, you know, uh, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security testified, I think back in February, that, and her, her, um, testimony seemed to indicate that, that she was for it. So, um, not all too surprisingly, there are various, seem to be various positions, uh, coming out of the Trump administration, um, uh, there does not seem to be a, a, a consistent policy view as to what the administration wants to do, at least uh, based on, on on those two individuals. Uh, Joyce, however, has has or is just about to uh, rotate back um, to NSA, and so it remains to be seen who his replacement will be at the White House, and where that person, whether that person will would align more with uh, Joyce's views or with uh, 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 Kristen Nielsen's views. And okay, well, so I there's, think, there may be a debate there, huh? There may be debate there, and and I happen, I mean, I did not, I didn't speak to uh, President Trump about this, but uh, judging someone, someone whose whose views tend to be uh, pro-business and anti-regulation, um, I kind of have to imagine that if uh, the, 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 the sort of a thumbnail sketch of the bill was presented to the president, that he would, he would probably instinctively side with it. Um, yeah, I think you're so, right. I, I wouldn't want to be the, 
the guy who goes in there on behalf of NSA and says, uh, well, Mr. President, uh, this is a measure that's going to break a lot of China uh, and uh, upset <laughs> right. a lot of international ex- expectations. Uh, right. Uh, I the, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. If it gets to his attention, uh, he probably is instinctively on that side. Well, let me ask about, you know, this the notion that this is going to interfere with U.S. intelligence collection. The, the most valuable kind of hacking back, one of the two uh, more valuable kinds of hacking back, is the stuff that Sean did, which is where you break into the C2 machine, the intermediate machine, and there were other people in your story who did this. They got into people's, inter, the, the hacker's intermediate machine, where they're storing stuff they've stolen and the tools they're using, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and... and uh, and they may have, uh, uh, there may be tip-offs there to a hundred different victims, uh, and stolen data from a hundred different victims. And I'm, I'm really, I guess I can see that if, um, the victims broke into those C2 machines to get their stuff back, that if, uh, uh, U.S. intelligence was also monitoring those systems, it would tip people off that the systems, that the C2 machines were under observation. But if you're going to, that's a vulnerabilities equities process of its own. If you're going to say, I don't want the bad guy to know that uh, all his stolen data is under observation, you have to have a, a, a system in which you ask, well, but what about all the people whose stolen data is there? Maybe it would be better if we just took it all and gave it back to them than if we uh, continued to watch it drain out of their uh, their systems. Uh, and I, I'm not completely convinced that the U.S. government runs that kind of vulnerability equity process. And if they don't, it's a little um, hard for them to say, but we're going to keep the victims from breaking in to get their stuff back. Right. Well, I think that... No, I, I mean, I think that it is, that, that is, that is one of the, I think, attainable goals of the, of this, uh, sort of inherent to the, to this debate, which is that I do think that you, if you were either a victim and or you were a, um, uh, uh, sort of a boutique cybersecurity firm that had been hired by the victim to, to, to go see if you can identify or recover any stolen data, uh, I mean, there are a couple of, 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 of Problems that 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 you immediately face. One of which is that okay, so I see my data, I grab my data, um, but uh, and, I, and I'm able to then identify what's been stolen. Perhaps that helps me sort of do some damage assessment. But but am I really going to think that whatever I sort of ostensibly steal back, that there's not another copy out there floating around there somewhere? That that that's a little bit you know, that is uh, I think a bit naive. Secondly, though, you know, what is the, what are the sort of ethics then of that firm that has been hired by company A and they, they then get onto the hot point and they see that not only is company A's data there, but so is B, C, D, and E that have all been stolen. And uh, do you then bring that information to the FBI and let the FBI go back to the, to the, to those, you know, companies B, C, D? Uh, or do you, can you as a cybersecurity firm go back to them and say, you know, look, we, while I was doing this operation on behalf of this client, I found all your stolen data. Um, I, you know, is that, that's, is that sort of straight up ambulance chasing? And, you know, what, <laughs> you know, so it, it's, I, well, no, I, think I, I, no, I think it's called a sales opportunity, but yeah, <laughs> well, I, think sure. so, I think it's a sales opportunity too, but, but I, I wonder, I just wonder about the ethics of that business approach, but I do think that, you know, look, I think that if you're, if you're the cybersecurity firm that's out there taking the, the, the legal and operational risks of being out there, 
I think that it's, you know, you would think that it's perfectly well within your, 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 uh, uh, remit to sort of go to those companies. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 this is, I think, why it's just such a fascinating space. And, and the, uh, I mean, it is worth mentioning that no company, you know, Sean Carpenter was not, he was not, uh, uh, criminally, uh, uh, he was not indicted for hacking back. And, and, and to this day, no one has been indicted for hacking back. And, uh, a former Justice Department official told me that, you know, the, the optics of that, you know, he said, I'm very aware that the optics of that are very poor. You know, how do you sort of, you know, house a company that, that's being victimized by a, a, uh, you know, a state sponsored hacking campaign? How do you sort of then, to that company for trying to sort of launch, you know, to, to conduct some sort of counterattack against a, a, a foreign hacker. You know, I said, look, that's not going to, it's going to be hard to convince a jury on that. So a lot of these issues are at this point, you know, it's, a lot of them are sort of hypothetical. So what I, what I, this, this was the challenge of the piece was just trying to find as many stories as possible to kind of ground this debate. Um, because one of the things that I had found, uh, you know, just academically interesting, but a bit frustrating from a reporting perspective was trying to find the hard anecdotes to be able to kind of ground the debate. So, um, you know, but, well, let but me ask you that, 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 that's sort of the closing question is, um, um, do you believe that there is a lot of hacking back going on? Despite all of the official denials, uh, do you think there are companies that do it on a regular basis? Is this something that is uh, uh, widely uh, done but just not talked about, sort of like uh, um, uh, the sex trade? Or is this very rare and the discussion we're having mostly hypothetical? Yeah, that's a, it's a Fantastic question, Stuart. And I think that, uh, there's a lot of bravado here, for sure. Um, there's a, if, judging by the number of people whose opinions I respect and whose expertise is real, who said to me, uh, you know, I, I, they'll never talk to you, but, you know, I've got friends who, who do this on behalf of X, Y, or Z. Judging by that, um, I would think that there that this is that this is widespread and, and and fairly ubiquitous. Judging by the number of people who, over the course of you know six months of kind of seven months of kind of on and off reporting, uh, actually uh, spoke to me um, either on background or on the record about about things that they've done, I think it's a bit more rare. So um, in the end, I can kind of only. Believe what I can verify, and and what I could verify is that uh, it's not happening perhaps as much as people are talking about, but certainly people are talking about it in a way that would suggest that it's that it's happening everywhere. It sounds like uh, uh, the perennial stories about teenagers having sex. A uh, lot more talk than actually uh, action. Uh, um, uh, but a fascinating story. That's Nick Schmidl. Uh, 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 Nick uh, uh, is a staff writer for the New Yorker. He must be the youngest staff writer the New Yorker has, right? Uh, well, maybe when I started seven years ago, but okay. <laughs> I, think, right. okay. I think there's, I think there, no, there's actually, you know, my colleague, uh, who has a piece in that same issue, uh, I think he may have just turned 30. He was, uh, 
he was he was he, his first piece he wrote as he was coming out of uh, as he was I think it was his graduate school thesis. So no, there are there are some extremely talented uh, uh, folks in their late twenties and early thirties that are there. So is that well. how people are getting hired by the New Yorker now? They're they're you you were writing something that was kind of uh, a paper for a uh, a fellowship. Uh, they're getting. Um, uh, opportunities to write and then they're just writing the hell out of it in the hopes the New Yorker will hire them? You know, there, I think that there's a little bit of that. I think that there's a little bit. I mean, that was sort of my, um, that, that was my initial approach just to, to, to getting into this magazine journalism world at all, which is that if there aren't, there's not the sort of tiered structure of working at the local paper and working your way up to the regional paper and working your way up to the New York Times and then sort of hoping that maybe someday the New Yorker will hire you. I mean, that, 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 that framework just doesn't exist. And so I think what it means is that, uh, you, many times people are sort of coming in and taking either, uh, enormous kind of physical risks and whether that's you know, this individual I mentioned, Ben Taub, who, you know, he, his first piece, he just went and sort of lived as a freelancer on the Syrian, uh, Turkish border for, for an extended period of time. And, and met a bunch of ISIS guys and wrote this this blockbuster story about a, a um, you know about a, about a Belgian kid who who went to Syria and his father then went to sort of track him down. And in my case, it was um, going to Pakistan. Um, I spent some time in Iran before I had any kind of real job studying Farsi and just kind of you know doing things that while in Pakistan, uh, in retrospect, while in retrospect now seem absolutely insane, uh, you know, that was kind of a way to, 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 to break out from the, from the rest of the crowd. Well, certainly smarter than going to journalism school, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a book to be written about people who are doing this just to break into journalism called, uh, Dodging Bullets to Board the Titanic. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, hey, look, I, it's, I, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's a vibrant, hey, it's, it's a, we're a very vibrant, as someone who just taught, so I taught last semester at, uh, at, uh, I taught back in the spring at Princeton for a semester. And I tell you, the the even just the taught journal in class on investigative journalism, I and mean, even the skill sets um, that I think are applicable to just sort of approaching, you know, kind of just problem solving, and and you know, in the contemporary age, are, are invaluable. And so, while the number of jobs, um, sort of the overall number of jobs, are probably you know are 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 down. You know, there are a lot of, uh, jobs being created right now, I think, is there's a, there's, there's a, uh, a, a yearning for, for some sort of actually objective truth and, and, uh, it's almost like seeing postmodernism get flipped on its head here. All right. Well, I, I and I, I, I promised that I would, uh, subscribe again to the New Yorker, which I stopped subscribing to when they wrote a story about oppressed male labor in the uh, porn industry. Uh, 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 and I told my wife, yeah, we have to subscribe to that. She said, yeah, we already do. So I, uh, I am now a subscriber, uh, uh the New Yorker, uh, it's way up from, uh, uh, the days, uh, uh, when it was, uh, doing uh, exposes on, uh, uh male, uh, Impression of males in the porn industry, and Nick Schmidl is a big contributor to it. Uh, thanks, Nick, uh, for uh, for the interview. Uh, thanks also to Jennifer Corden-Barabanov, to Jamil Jaffer, to Megan Reese. This has been episode 215 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Cyber Law Podcast is looking to hire a part-time intern. We've gotten several applications. We're getting close. If you're interested, you better move fast. Just go to uh, uh, steptoe.com slash careers and uh, look for the description of the uh, 
position. Um, also, if you want to suggest somebody uh, uh, as a guest, uh, just uh, uh, send us an email, cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com, and uh, um, uh, suggest somebody that we haven't already had on, uh, and we'll send you a highly coveted stepto or sorry, cyberlaw podcast um, uh, mug. Um, and, uh, I, I should say it's been a while since I said this. Uh, if you think we got something wrong, please send us email, same place, cyberlawpodcast, uh, uh, at stepto.com and, uh, uh, we'll, um, uh, admit, uh, fess up to our errors, which I'm sure are numerous, uh, uh on the air. Coming up, we got Megan Stiffel, uh, Cybersecurity Policy Director for Public Knowledge. We've got Nick Bilton, uh, author of American Kingpin, which is about the uh, Silk Road uh, uh, debacle. Uh, and uh, Kirsten Nielsen, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. And I, I guarantee, uh, Nick, that uh, if you're listening, uh, I will ask her what she meant by her testimony on uh, uh, hacking back. Uh, uh, so tune in to uh, uh, those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.